Welcome to church. Really glad that you made the choice to, to tune in today. Uh, if this is the first time that you've, that you've joined us here at Coast Community Church online, then a really special welcome to you. You've actually joined us today um, in, in the middle between two different series. We, we finished a seven week series last week called Deep and Wide. And we're going to start a new series next week. If you missed deep and wide. If you missed any of those messages, then I would encourage you to go back and take a look. You can subscribe to our YouTube channel. You can take a look on our Facebook page. Uh, you can even look up Coast Community Church on your podcast app. And I'd really encourage you to, to take a look at this series, Deep and Wide. We explored what it looks like for the church, for the people of God, for the ecclesia, to have deep roots and to have wide reaches, to be established and grounded in Christ and also to be present and to be growing in love within our communities. And last week, Keith Farmer wrapped up the series with an encouragement that as redeemed people, we are to live boldly, to live expansively, not to become cynical or conservative, but to innovate and to take risks Next week, we're going to start a brand new series, but today is going to be something of a pivot point. And I want to join uh, last week's series, last, the last series to the next series. And before we jump into that, I want to reflect for a moment and ask the question, why do we want to go deep and wide in the first place? To what end? Why would we take risks and innovate? I want us to ask, what better future are we aiming at? here? What is the vision that orients us, that motivates us? And I want to ask this question now, as, as hopefully we're looking to emerge from the COVID-19 restrictions and conscious that we might have a long way to go there. Uh, and also asking this question in the context of, of Black Lives Matter protests and, and issues of race and equality that are boiling over, I want us to consider the importance of vision in the context of crisis. And the reason for this is, is that for many thousands of people, perhaps people watching today, perhaps you, your sense of purpose, your sense of destiny, your picture of the good life has been shaken. Psychologist, and believe it or not, he's a Trappist monk, Thomas Keating, he asserts that humans have three deep biological needs, three universal primary motivations, our need for power and control, our need for safety and security, and our need for acceptance and esteem. And our visions of the good life, our dreams, our imaginings of a better future invariably are based on these deep motivations. And yet for many of us in 2020, any stability, any predictability we might have thought that we had across these things has been challenged, if not dismantled. And this is the very definition of crisis. And you see, crisis is so unsettling because it disrupts our sense of reality. It disrupts our sense of control, of safety and of acceptance. Our deep beliefs about what life is all about 
prove no longer to be satisfactory. And indeed, even our sense of identity can come into question as our foundations and as our ideals are shaken. Between devastating bushfires and the global health and economic turmoil of COVID-19 and the Black Lives Matter protests that have turned ugly and divisive, our world has been rattled at least for all of us. And for some, it has been shaken to the very core. And what matters, perhaps more than anything, as we look toward the far side of crisis, is that we would have some clear and some compelling picture of the future, a vision that calls us forward, a vision that is more robust, that is more alive, that is more loving and true than the one that it replaces, a vision that gives us hope. A number of years ago, I read a book by an author, James K.A. Smith, and it's called You Are What You Love. And I hope that some of you have read this book. If you haven't, I really commend it to you. It's a great book. Uh, you Are What You Love. And he says this, he says, what constitutes our ultimate identities, what makes us who we are, the kind of people we are, is what we love. More specifically, our identity is shaped by what we ultimately love or what we love as ultimate. What at the end of the day gives us a sense of meaning, purpose, understanding and orientation to our being in the world. What we desire or love ultimately is a largely implicit vision of what we hope for, what we think the good life looks like. This vision of the good life shapes all kinds of actions and decisions and habits that we undertake, often without our even thinking about it. Visions of the future shape the way we live today, the way we make decisions, what we value, the kinds of things and the kinds of experiences that we pursue. Our picture of ultimate destiny, of ultimate purpose, of the good life, it shapes us and it draws us toward it. And you know what? I think, I think marketers know this better than anyone. And that's why they, they intentionally seed our desires with, with dream jobs and dream vacations, uh, dream houses, dream dates, dream kitchens, dream bodies, dream cars, you name it. They know that we point ourselves towards our dreams. Now, we, we're built this way. This is actually a good thing. We are designed to hold on to and we are designed to live towards some, some sense of what is good, of what is ultimate. And the writer of Proverbs knew this. And, and this proverb is going to be really familiar to you. Proverbs uh, chapter 29, verse 18. The NRSV says it like this. It says, where there is no prophecy, the people cast off restraint. But you might be familiar with the King James Version, which says, where there is no vision, the people perish. The New Living Translation says, where people do not accept divine guidance, they run wild. Now, the word that's translated vision here is causone. Uh, it's a divine communication, a vision, a dream. It's a picture of destiny. And the Hebrew word here that says uh, to perish is actually porah. 
And it's interesting that the root of, of this word actually comes from uncovering or loosening a woman's hair so that it's actually blown and tossed about in the wind. It's unrestrained. It goes in all directions. And so the proverb is saying is that without a reliable word about the future, without a vision for our lives, without some divine guidance, we are without direction, that we are tossed and blown about by shifting circumstances. Vision is about direction. And at no time are we more in need of direction than when we are navigating through and out of crisis. Vision always looks beyond our circumstances. It looks beyond the turbulence to a new possibility that the crisis has made possible. Vision paints a picture of a better future once the challenge of the moment has been overcome. You know, it was even from the rubble of post-war Britain that Winston Churchill cast a vision about not only rebuilding England, but even about a unified Europe. Nelson Mandela cast vision for a respectful and for a united South Africa, one that was marked by equality and justice and freedom. And he could see this even from behind prison bars and while surrounded by the injustice of apartheid. Moses led the captives out of Egypt and through the wilderness with a vision from God of a, of a promised land of a land that was flowing with milk and honey. Nehemiah spurred the disillusioned, the defeated Israelites with a vision of, of the walls of Jerusalem being rebuilt and their identity regained as the chosen people of God. And from perhaps Israel's darkest hour in, in Babylonian exile, Isaiah prophesied about the coming Messiah. He prophesied about the one who would reign over an everlasting kingdom with justice and righteousness. It was a vision of the kingdom of God. And of course, Isaiah was looking forward to Christ and looking forward to the new community that Jesus would usher in. And it's to this vision of community that we're going to take a look at today so that we might reorient ourselves and that we might fix our eyes on our destiny. Now, to do this, we're going to, to race through the first three and a bit chapters of the book uh, of, of Ephesians over the next 90 to 120 minutes or so. Kidding. Um, we'll get through it in less than 80. Um, I'm, I'm going to just cherry pick some of the themes um, that will give us a glimpse of what God's vision for his people um, and what our ultimate hope is. But my hope, my hope is that during the week that you might actually really camp out in the book of Ephesians as part of your, your reading plan and that you would spend your week in this wonderful letter. So the book of Ephesians, of course, it is a letter. It's a letter written to the church in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus exists today uh, in modern day Turkey. At the time, it was one of the most important Greek port cities. The letter was written by the Apostle Paul. He wrote it while he was in prison in Rome. And Paul actually was the one who founded the church in Ephesus. 
This, this was a circular letter. It wasn't written and addressed to any particular individuals. It wasn't even addressed to any particular gathering of the church in the city of Ephesus. The whole point was that it would get passed around through all of those gatherings in people's homes. You might also remember that Ephesus and the church in Ephesus, um, it was one of the seven churches that was written about in the book of Revelation. And Jesus had something to say about these seven churches. So Revelation chapter two, verse two to four, this is what Jesus said, what he dictated to John about the church in Ephesus. He said, I know all the things you do. I've seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You've examined the claims of those who say they're apostles but are not, and you have discovered that they're liars. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. So all really good stuff. And then Jesus says this, but I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you first did. And it's really sobering to read in Revelation that, that, that the church in Ephesus was in real danger because they lost their first love. And indeed, we know that the church in Ephesus died, that by, by 200 AD, there was no evidence that the church in Ephesus was still functioning. It had lost its first love. And meanwhile, the whole purpose of Paul's letter to the Ephesians is that these new Gentile Christians would understand God's vision for his new community and what it means to live in the light of the vision of, 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 that, of that new society. And the very essence of this holy and collective destiny is love. John Stott puts it like, like this, and this is great, I love this. Nobody can emerge from a careful reading of Paul's letter to the Ephesians with a privatized gospel. For Ephesians is the gospel of the church. It sets forth God's eternal purpose to create through Jesus Christ a new society, which stands out in bright relief against the somber background of the old world. For God's new society is characterized by life in place of death, by unity and reconciliation in place of division and alienation, and by wholesome standards of righteousness in place of the corruption of wickedness, by love and peace in place of hatred and strife. And that's a great vision, isn't it? And it's a really good on-ramp to our exploration today. We're going to take a look at these first three and a bit chapters in four parts. Firstly, Paul wants the church to know that God actually has a plan, that God has a vision and that all of human history is moving towards this vision. Secondly, he wants us to understand that vision in our hearts. He wants us to really get it deeply. Then he outlines three elements uh, of, of this, this vision. There's certainly more to it, but he outlines a vision for life a vision for unity and a vision for love. And then finally, he urges us, he urges the church to participate in this plan, to live now in the light of this eternal vision. So God's plan, chapter one, uh, we pick up at verse four and Paul writes, even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ 
to be holy and to be without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do and it gave him great pleasure. Verse 9, Paul writes, God has now revealed to us his mysterious will regarding Christ, which is to fulfill his own good plan. And this is the plan. Isn't it cool when it's this clear? This is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church and the church is his body. It is made full and complete by Christ who fills all things everywhere with himself. And then in chapter three, he circles back. As I briefly wrote earlier, God himself revealed his mysterious plan to me. As you read what I've written to you, you will understand my insight into this plan regarding Christ. God did not reveal it to previous generations, but now by his spirit, he has revealed it to his holy apostles and prophets. And this is the plan. Both Gentiles and Jews who believe in the good news share equally in the riches inherited by God's children. Both are part of the same body. Both enjoy the promise of blessings because they belong to Christ Jesus. By God's grace and mighty power, I've been given the privilege of serving him by spreading this good news. So right from the very start, before creation, God envisioned a people, a family, a body, and that it is through and within Christ that he will bring this about. And for those of you who thought that you were on the outside, who thought that you were excluded, well, you're not. This plan includes all things, everyone, everywhere, full and complete in Christ. And this is not some puny, it's not some exclusive plan. It is eternity long and it is cosmos wide. But Paul wants the Ephesians to get this into their hearts. And so in chapter 1, verse 16, you can hear you can hear how passionate Paul is when he prays this. Listen to this. I pray for you constantly asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you the spiritual wisdom and insight so that you might grow in your knowledge of God. I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope he has given to those he has called, his holy people who are his rich and glorious inheritance. I pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe in him. And then in chapter 3, uh, verse 16 and 18, he, again, he circles back and he's still praying. I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, that he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high and how deep his love is. Paul is on his knees 
And he's praying that the reality of God's plan would sink deep into the hearts of his readers, that this vision of love would take root. He knows that if it just stays in the realm of head knowledge, that this vision will not actually change the way that people live and love and do life together. Without a revelation of God's vision, one that is empowered by the Spirit himself, they simply would not have the strength. And so God has a plan to bring everything together under and within Christ, a new community, a rich and glorious inheritance, Paul says. And he wants this to be our orienting vision for life, rooted deeply in our hearts. But what's it like, you ask? Tell me more, Jeff. Well, I'm glad you asked. So let's, let's look at these, these three aspects, these three key ingredients of God's vision, a vision for life, a vision for unity, and a vision for love. Chapter 2, verse 1 says this, it says, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You know, you think about it, death, death is not part of God's plan. Sometimes as Christians, we think that the biggest offense to God is sin, that our behavior, that our thoughts, that, that, our, that our sin is his greatest heartache. But I think that in God's eyes, there is no greater abomination than death. As the author of life, death is directly opposed to the character of God. It is directly opposed to everything that he envisions and everything he creates. He hates sin because it leads to death. But God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Do you see this? Your eternal life is Christ's eternal life. Your salvation does not secure you an individual ticket to eternal life. You have life because you have life in Christ. You are participating in the life and even in the reign of Jesus. And you didn't do this. <laughs> and you certainly, I certainly didn't earn it. God saved you by his grace when you believed and you can't take credit for it. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things you've done. So none of us can boast about it. We live because we are united in Christ and we participate in his life everlasting as a free gift. It has nothing to do with whether we deserve it or not. It has nothing to do with belonging to a religion. It has everything to do with being joined together in the person of Jesus. Now, remember here that Paul is writing to the Gentiles. He's, he's writing to non-Jews. We can't imagine 
the religious divide that Paul is bridging here when he proclaims salvation through Christ to the Gentiles. They are the outsiders. Never has there been a deeper, more enculturated racial divide than this. But in Christ, the categories are removed. They're obliterated and the Gentiles can scarcely believe the news. Listen to what Paul says, chapter 2, verse 14. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people. When in his, his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross. And our hostility towards each other was put to death. So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together we are his house built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. And then he circles back and you remember this in chapter three. And this is God's plan. Both Gentiles and Jews who believe in the good news share equally in the riches inherited by God's children. Both are part of the same body and both enjoy the promise of blessing because they belong to Christ Jesus. You see, there is one body, one family, one temple, all belonging to Jesus. So not only are we made eternal in the body of Christ, we are also made one. And even though we are unified, we are not made uniform. We have not lost our diversity. We have not lost our individuality in Jesus. Listen to this in in chapter 3, verse 10. God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in heavenly places. God's wisdom is evident throughout the cosmos precisely because of the diversity in the body in the church. We celebrate diversity because it proclaims the goodness and the wisdom and the expansiveness of God. But you know what? There is only one path that leads to unity that still celebrates diversity. And it is not the path of violence. It is not the path of persuasion or negotiation or yelling. It is the path of costly death-defeating love. Now, of course, love infuses and it motivates and it energizes this whole vision of life together in God because God is love. God is inviting us into his own community of love, Father, Son and Spirit. This vision for the church, the body of Christ, is not just some picture of a nice way for us all to get along and then perhaps go to heaven one day. It is our shared destiny in the community of God himself. John Baxter Kruger, in his commentary on on John's gospel, he, he writes of this relationship. He says, from all eternity, God is Father, Son and Spirit. 
sharing a life of unchained fellowship and intimacy, fired by passionate, self-giving love and mutual delight. Paul writes, now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. You see, this is love. The eternal relationship of self-givenness and delight. And it is into this unchained fellowship of intimacy between Father, Son and Spirit that we are invited. It's what we were created for and something in our hearts It knows that it's true. And so Paul wants us to experience this. Listen to this prayer uh, in chapter 3, verse 19. So Paul is praying, May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. What a prayer. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. And I encourage you to write that verse down. Write it in your journal. Stick it on your fridge. Put it on your whiteboard and meditate on that verse for a decade or two. It is experiencing the love of Christ that makes us complete, that makes us whole. This is God's vision for his body, for his church, for his his family. It is a vision of life and unity and love. It's not a vision of religion. It's a vision of family. And like any family, It requires that we participate. And so there's something of a change of gears when we hit chapter four. So the first three chapters, they peg out this vision of life and unity and love. But then chapter four says, if this is God's vision, if it is our ultimate reality, then how do we live? How do we live now in the light of that vision? And he writes uh, and he opens up chapter four. He says, therefore, I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling. For you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body and one spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. Therefore, he says, because of everything that he has just written, everything we've just gone through, live now in the shape of life to come. In the same way that Father, Son and Spirit live in perpetual self-giving love, one for the other, so too should you honour one another now. For you are one body and you share the one Spirit. So get this, we are to let the future determine our present, not the past. So many of us, even even those, those of us, me, who declare Christ as Lord, still live in a way that lets the past determine our present. 
We are freed from that. And instead, we are to live future shaped lives. Now, to help us do this by the spirit within, we are being equipped to live a life worthy of our calling. Jesus has given the church special gifts and capacities to build up, to unify, to bring the body to maturity. So Paul writes in chapter four from verse 11, he says, now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church. The apostles, the prophets, evangelists and the pastors and teachers, their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Then we will no longer be immature like children. And get this, we won't be tossed and blown about by every new wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. And guess what? You and me and we are the the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the pastors and the teachers, everyone has been gifted in some manner to build up the body, whether it's one of these gifts or some other, no one who has the spirit of God in them is exempt. Together we are responsible to equip, to, to equip one another to build up the church, to do God's work, to reflect and to resemble the future to which we are called. You know, our, our vision for Coast Community Church uh, comes from the very, the very next verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 16. It says this, He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. You know, this is not just some cute, isolated piece of scripture for us to pop on our website. This is a declaration that we are united by and we are destined for God's vision for life. All of us doing our own special work as part of the universal church, the ecclesia, helping all the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. So if, if bushfires, if COVID-19, if racial division and violence or, or perhaps some other crisis in your life, if that has caused you to realise that your hopes and dreams, that your vision of the good life, that your sense of destiny is too small, if it's caused you to realise that the things that you've set your sights on are like a vapour, then lift your eyes because crisis has revealed that it's time for a bigger vision. And God's cosmic vision for his people has not changed. His vision has always been that all of creation would be brought under and into Christ, that we would join in the perfect community of God as the body of Christ, healthy, growing, full of love. Can you see it? Just a glimpse. You know, for those of us who declare that Christ is Lord, for me, 
For those of us who say that our confidence is in him, that we are part of his body, how long will we insist on our puny visions? If I am in Christ and if he is in me, then my vision for life must be his. The cosmos wide, the everlasting community of God. If your vision is not this big, if it is not all encompassing, if it is not this loving, if it is not this just, if it is not this whole, then you can have this one for free. Even though it cost God, even though it cost the creator of the universe, everything, his vision of life together is a free gift because that's what love does. If this has captured your heart in a new way today, can you please reach out and speak to someone? Make a comment in the space below and ask for prayer. Visit our website, grab our contact details, whatever it takes. Do not let the moment pass because this vision, this vision for community of life, of unity and love, this vision includes you. So let me pray. And you know what? I'm just going to pray what Paul prayed. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Amen.